Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. All right, guys. Hey, it's Chris here again. I'm going to be uh, continuing reading from uh, The Biblical Cosmos by uh, Robin A. Perry. And uh, the chapter that I'm going to be reading from is uh, on the heavens. And it's called uh, Eyes in Their Stars, the Sky. It says, uh, what do you see when you look up into the night sky? Whatever it is, it is almost certainly not what people living in the ancient Near East, including ancient Israel, saw when they looked up. It is hard for us to make the leap of imagination that it takes to see the sky through ancient eyes. In the Disney movie The Lion King, there is a wonderful scene in which Simba the lion, Timon the meerkat, and Pumbaa the warthog are lying on their backs staring at the night sky. Pumbaa. Timon, ever wonder what those sparkly dots are up there? Timon, Pumbaa, I don't wonder, I know. Pumbaa, oh, what are they? Timon, they're fireflies. Fireflies that got er stuck up on that big bluish black thing. Pumbaa, oh gee, I always thought they were balls of gas burning billions of miles away. Timon, Pumbaa, with you everything's gas. Pumbaa, Simba, what do you think? Simba, well, I don't know. Pumba, oh, come on, kid. Give, give, give. We told you ours, please. Simba, somebody once told me that the great kings of the past are up there watching over us. Pumba, really? Timon, you mean a bunch of royal dead guys are watching us? Timon and Pumba start laughing. Simba, embarrassed, joins in. Timon, who told you something like that? Simba, yeah, yeah. Timon, what mook? Simba, yeah, pretty dumb, huh? So you can already see how they have the programming in the movies there. <laughs> so anyway, so what are stars? Burning balls of gas or the dead kings of the past? Here we have the clash between a scientific and the quote-unquote primitive worldview. For the audience, the joke is that we know that in the quote real world, it is Pumbaa, the dumb warthog, who is actually correct about the nature of the stars. But within the world of the story, it is Simba who turns out to be right. The dead lion kings of the past do indeed inhabit the night sky and watch over those living on earth. This conflict between Simba's, quote, dead kings and Pumbaa's, quote, burning balls of gas neatly highlights the difference between our modern scientific cosmologies and the mythic cosmologies of the ancient world, the Bible included. In this part of the tour, I wish to help us to understand biblical views on the sun, moon, and stars. But first, the weather. Before we get too high up into the heavens, it would be good to take a look out of the window as we ascend and briefly consider the weather. We think of weather in terms of modern meteorology and climatology, but biblical weather is not about, quote, natural phenomena, if by that we mean events that happen independent of divine influence. Biblical weather is always occurring within the sphere of God's sovereignty, 
The winds, for instance, do his bidding, and the storms are unquestionably under divine control. Weather, in fact, is a means by which God is manifest in creation. To take the most obvious biblical example in the thunderstorms noted for their destructive power, Jehovah appears riding the storm clouds into battle. He wields their lightnings as weapons, as arrows, manifesting his power and glory. Their thunders are his voice, his battle cry. God's other meteorological weaponry included winds and hail. However, at the same time as revealing God, the weather also conceals him. In particular, the clouds of a divine appearance, a theophany, serve this dual role. The most important biblical example of this revealing-slash-concealing weather is the dark clouds atop Mount Sinai when Moses and the children of Israel were camped at the bottom. The thunder and lightning struck terror into the hearts of the people, manifesting God's power and glory, and yet it simultaneously hid God from view. When God rides the storm, all that is ever seen is the storm itself, never God. Before moving up higher, unless we begin to think that biblical weather is all about the scary side of God, we ought to note that it also manifests God's goodness and blessing. Rain from heaven, in particular, is a divine provision, a means of blessing the land with fertility. The clouds are disappearing below us now, and up ahead we can see the stars coming out. And then it says, uh, ancient Near Eastern versus modern views about celestial bodies. Where are the sun, moon, and stars located? Before trying to make sense of biblical views of the sun, moon, and stars, it will be helpful to get some feel for how the ancients thought about the location or habitat of such celestial entities. Here we need to forget our scientific understandings about, quote, space and look with fresh eyes. Genesis 1 provides a good entry point into that discussion. In Genesis 1, as we have previously seen, God spends day one, days 1 to 3, shaping and marking off the different zones of the creation, and days 4 to 6, filling them. So he's got a table here. It's separated into two columns. The first column says, create habitable zones. It says, day 1, light and dark separated. Day 2, waters above separated from waters below by a firmament. Day 3, water separated from dry land. Then the, uh, the next column says, fill the zones. Day four, sun, moon, stars. Day five, sky creatures, birds, and sea creatures. And day six, land creatures, including humans. And then day seven is rest. Each, quote, zone is created by means of an act of separation. <sighs> to understand the zone inhabited by the sun, moon, and stars, we need to consider day two. And God said, Let there be a firmament, rakia, in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Genesis 1, 6 through 8. As we have already seen, this concerns a cosmic mass of primeval water that God, quote, tames by creating a habitable space between the, quote, waters below and the, quote, waters above. These waters above are not clouds nor the atmosphere, but rather a vast sea above the sky, beyond the space now inhabited by the sun, moon, and stars. What kept these oceanic waters at bay was the, quote, firmament, Hebrew rakia a solid sky dome holding back the life-threatening waters. 
to us, the idea of a solid sky seems absurd, but all peoples in the ancient world thought of the sky as solid. We find the same view, for instance, in ancient Sumerian, Hittite, Egyptian, Assyrian, and Babylonian texts. And then it says down here in a footnote, there was speculation concerning what the sky was made from, some kind of metal, suggestions included tin, brass, iron, etc., or clay, or some type of crystalline substance. Ezekiel 122 suggests the latter. I would say it's probably a combination of uh, metals and uh, crystalline. It says, uh, the Bible is here simply reflecting the then universal view of a solid sky. The celestial lights, according to Genesis 1.17, were placed by God, quote, in the firmament, Berkia, of the heavens. They were fixed, it appears, in the solid vault of the sky. Ancient Israelites were very well aware that the stars moved, so we must suppose that this vault was imagined to rotate. In Psalm 19.5 and 6, the rising sun is said to, quote, come forth from his, quote, chamber beneath the horizon. How the sun got from where it set back to where it rises is not explained. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was thought to pass through gates in the sky and then on a night voyage through the underworld. The Old Testament does speak of, quote, gates, doors, and windows in the sky, and it may well be that the sun passed through a portal such as these. The only reference to its journey between sunset and sunrise is found in Ecclesiastes, quote, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Ecclesiastes 1.5. So, just a comment on that. The Bible is not actually clear about how the sun moves across the sky. And I do find it interesting that a lot of ancient cultures did actually consider the sun to go under the earth, like when it sets, and then, you know, rise again. I don't know if they were being metaphorical there or if that's actually the case. Maybe perhaps the earth is a square and not a circle, and it, it goes under by some means of a portal or something and then comes up. I mean, we don't we don't know. It's not clear on that. I don't feel that's something you can really figure out either unless, you know, you get divine revelation on it. <clears throat> but anyway, it goes on. It says... Uh, Having clarified the location of celestial bodies, we need to get some sense of how ancient Near Easterners classified such entities. And then he's got another table here divided into two columns. The first column says type of celestial entity. Then you have the sun, moon, and the stars. And then the next column says ancient typology of astral entities. So the stars, you have falling stars, which are comets, etc. You have fixed stars which are the stars grouped in constellations. Then down here in a footnote it says, uh, stars and constellations have been identified in Babylonian astronomical texts. The Bible also appears to mention certain specific stars and constellations, although we cannot be sure which ones are referred to. For instance, Keon in Amos 526 may be Saturn viewed as a god. Kima in Job 9, 9, 38, 31, and almost 5.8 may be the Pleiades. And then it says you have the wandering stars, which include Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. The classic five. Uh, 
And then here is another table. It says uh, types of celestial entity, the stars, the planets, the moons, and the comets, asteroids. So this is, and then it says modern typology of astral entities. So stars would include the sun. Planets would include Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and the Earth itself. And the moons would include our moon. So, <clears throat> see the contrast there between the two views. So it says, a simple comparison of ancient and modern typologies of astral entities will reveal just how different our classification schemes are. To us, the sun is a star composed mostly of hydrogen and helium, a, quote, ball of gas burning billions of miles away, as Pumbaa put it. It forms the center of our solar system with all the planets in orbit around it. To the ancients, while the stars and the sun were all heavenly bodies and were associated with the gods, the sun was not thought to be just a star. It was clearly in a league of its own, nor was it conceived of as the center of a solar system. The earth was not a planet in orbit around the sun. The sun was a god that moved across the vault of the heavens. In the ancient world, including ancient Israel, the moon was not what we think of as a moon. To us, a moon is a celestial body in orbit around another celestial body, such as a planet, a natural satellite, as it were. And the moon is the natural satellite that orbits our planet, Earth. But, of course, the Earth was not a, quote, planet in the ancient Near Eastern conception of the cosmos. There were no planets, and the moon was a unique celestial object, not simply one moon amongst many. We also need to remember that the moon was not thought of as a great, quote, lump of rock glowing only because it reflects the light of the sun. The moon was understood to be a source of light. The ancients watched the sky very closely and knew the stars far more intimately than most modern people do. It was clear that the stars fell into three categories, those that were fixed in constellations, those that seemed to shoot across the sky, and those that seem to wander freely. We now know these wandering stars to be planets visible to the naked eye, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. But, as we have already said, there were no planets in the ancient understandings of the cosmos. The, quote, wandering stars appeared to be like all the other stars, save in their behavior. For that reason, they were singled out as special and were associated with various specific deities, an association still preserved in our names for the planets. To the modern mind, stars are, quote, balls of gas burning billions of miles away, some of them being considerably larger and brighter than our own sun. For the ancients, the stars were very far away and inaccessible to humans, but they would never have imagined just how far away the stars actually are. <laughs> Celestial Entities and the Gods in the Ancient Near East. For ancient peoples, there were most certainly, quote, eyes in their stars. The stars were very closely associated with gods. It is not always completely clear whether the stars were thought to be literally identical with gods, to be mere symbols of gods, or to be the heavenly bodies of gods that transcended those bodies. The data is complex, but a strong case can be made for the last object option. What is indisputable is that the sun, moon, and stars were very closely linked with deities. So in ancient Mesopotamia, from as far back as our evidence goes, there were gods associated with the moon, Nana, Sin, Swin, the sun, Samus, or Shamash, 
and various stars, e.g. Inanna, Ishtar, and Nin Siana as Venus. Marduk as Jupiter and sometimes Mercury. Ninurta as Mercury or Sirius or Saturn. And Nergal as Mars. <coughs> Given that gods were also regularly pictured in human-like terms, having giant human-like bodies and non-human-like terms, for instance, the moon god as a bull calf, it seems that while the stars may have been gods, there was more to those gods than the stars. Here, for instance, is an Assyrian depiction of the Pleiades constellation as a warrior deity in human form. In other words, stars and gods were not simplistically identified, but gods did manifest themselves in stars. In the mythological texts about the gods, some of them are seen as having, quote, astral bodies and thus as being visually embodied in stars. Their human-like bodies were not manifest in the visible world except as idols and in art. In omen texts and other astronomical texts about the stars, they are seen as being images of gods in much the same way that idols and temples were images of gods. A telling passage in this regard is found in the Enuma Elish. Quote, Marduk created the stations for the great gods, setting up the stars, their, i.e., the great gods, likenesses as constellations. The meaning of the stars, their likenesses, seems to be that the stars represent astral counterparts to the gods. Thus the stars were the repositories of the presence of the gods, existing on the boundary of the physical and metaphysical aspects of reality. This, incidentally, is why the behavior of astral bodies was understood to be messages from the gods, their will made manifest for those humans who could interpret the signs through astrology. These astral deities were the objects of cultic devotion, praise, sacrificial offerings, and intercessions. Here, for instance, is a prayer to the moon god, Sin. Quote, O Sin, radiant god, luminary of heaven, firstborn son of Enlil, foremost one of Eker, you reign as king of the universe, you set your throne in the shining heavens, you set out a superb linen, you don the resplendent tiara of lordship, whose waxing never fails. O luminary sin, at, night of, at sight of sin, the stars are jubilant, the night rejoices. Sin takes his place in the center of the shining heaven. This pattern of astral worship was also known in West Semitic cultures, such as those of the Canaanites, Israel's neighbors. <clears throat> Divine stars in ancient Israel, the worship of celestial entities in ancient Israel. Ancient Israelites were well aware that their neighbors worshipped the sun, moon, and stars, and the evidence suggests that such astral worship was not unknown in Israel. Jehovah, through Amos, complained against the northern kingdom, Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikut, your king, and Kion, your images, of a star, your gods, that you made for yourselves. And I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says Jehovah, whose name is the Lord of hosts or God of hosts. Almost 525 through 27. <clears throat> In the southern kingdom, Josiah deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal not an astral deity, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens, 2 Kings 23.5. 
Later, the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed the coming desecration of idolaters. At that time, declares Jehovah, the bones of the kings of of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. Jeremiah 8, 1 through 2, also Zephaniah 1, 1, 5. While we need to bear in mind prophetic rhetoric, this suggests that astral worship was widespread in Israel, from the kings to the general populace. Ezekiel, in a vision, sees an, quote, abomination, 25 men in the inner court of the temple in Jerusalem, quote, with their backs to the temple of, of the Jehovah, and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east, Ezekiel 8.16. The very fact that such worship was strictly forbidden in in Deuteronomic law, worship of the sun, moon, and stars by Israelites was punishable by stoning, would indicate that it presented something of a temptation, quote, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Jehovah your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Deuteronomy 4.19 The piety required is well expressed by Job. Quote, If I have looked at, i.e. worship, the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart has been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Job 31:26-28. Similarly, astrology, though widely practiced in the ancient world, was frowned upon by the guardians of Israel's faith. Quote, you are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Isaiah 47.13 Astral Entities and the Divine Council However, surprising as it may be to many, there are reasons to think that some biblical authors did, did consider the sun, moon, and stars to be very closely associated with, perhaps even identical with, heavenly creatures. The members of the Divine Council First, I need to say a little about the Divine Council. All the ancient cultures around the Mediterranean had a concept of a Divine Council. This was a council of the gods that administered the cosmos. In Ugarit, the ancient West Semitic culture closest to ancient Israel, the Divine Council had four layers in its hierarchical structure. El, the chief god, and his wife, Atharat. The sons of El, the gods, there appear to have been 70 of them. Among them are Enat, Aftart, Aftar, Shapshu, Yari, Shahar, and Shalim, the craftsmen gods, and then minor deities including the messenger gods, servants. So in Ugarit, the Council of El is called, quote, the Assembly of the Gods, the Circle of El, the Assembly of the Sons of El. The Divine Council was a large divine family with servants who convened on El's sacred mountain. 
Now it appears that the sons of El were astral deities. They are called, quote, star gods and the assembly of stars. And individual members have astral associations. Yari was the moon god. Shapshu was the sun goddess. Shahar was the dawn and Shalim the dusk. Aftar and Aftart appear to be the morning and evening star, Venus. And Repesh possibly represents Mars. Ancient Israel's divine council was not dissimilar, although it only had three layers. El, the chief god, i.e. the god, or what we would call God with a capital G, and ruler of the council. The sons of El, or the gods. Then it says down here in a footnote, Incidentally, in Psalm 8, I suggest that when we read that humans were created, quote, a little lower than Elohim, it is neither, quote, the God, i.e. Jehovah, nor run-of-the-mill angels that are in mind, but the members of the divine council, the sons of El. And then last but not least, the messengers, or the Malachim, i.e. angels. We need to appreciate that in ancient Israel, the category of Elohim, or the gods, was not reserved for Jehovah. Elohim were beings that inhabited the spirit world. So the category included Jehovah, but also the other members of the divine council. It says down here in a footnote, Psalm 82, and then it says possibly also the spirits of dead people, 1 Samuel 28:13. It also includes demons, which you see in the word Shadim, which is used in the Old Testament. They were worshipped as gods. So the category included, okay, so I read that. So it says, this, however, should not lead us to suppose that biblical faith was polytheistic. In the Bible, Jehovah was not just any old Elohim. He was one of a kind, utterly unique. He alone is called the God, Ha Elohim, a.k.a. with a definite article. So again, you see this. The Hebrew religion was monotheistic uh, because they only believed in one God. It even says in the Old Testament, you know. um, Here, let me look up the verse real quick. Well, I guess if I could find the verse, but I guess I can't now. But anyway, it's, it's you know, the verse that's quoted in the New Testament, well, it says, uh, you know, God is one. You know, and it said that also about um, Jehovah in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so anyway, it's, you know, history is kind of about this war between monotheism and between pantheism, which all these other uh, pagan cultures were. Um He alone was before all things and created all things, including all the other Elohim. He alone rules over all things. There is no sense in which he is simply one among equals. Thus, worshipers can proclaim, Who is like you, O Jehovah, among the gods? The answer is that no one is like Jehovah. He is the God of gods. 
The Elohim are thus rightly called to worship him. Our interest in this chapter is in the members of the divine council. In the Old Testament, they are called, amongst other things, quote, gods, or Elohim, quote, sons of God most high, El Elyon, quote, princes, and quote, holy ones. They are assigned governance by Jehovah over the 70 nations of the world. Their responsibility is to do justice, although they do not always achieve this. <clears throat> now, just as Ugaritic literature refers to the divine council as, quote, the assembly of stars, so too parts of the Old Testament seem to associate the members of the divine council with stars. Given that many readers are likely to find this claim rather implausible, I will take a little more care in giving my reasons. There are several lines of evidence that seem to support this claim. It says uh, Ezekiel 1, 4 through 28. While at the Chabar Canal in Babylon, Ezekiel experienced a dramatic vision in which he saw a fiery cloud come from the north. He saw, quote, the likeness of four living creatures that had human and animal features, the form of a man, the feet of a calf, four wings and heads with four faces, human, lion, ox, and eagle. It is likely that these are the four Babylonian seasonal constellations. Leo, the lion, Scorpio, who had a human face, Taurus, the bull, and Pegasus, the thunderbird slash eagle. In Babylonian astrology, these four constellations depict the four directions of the sky being about 90 degrees from each other. If you look this up, they actually all rotate around the North Star, Polaris. And actually, uh, when they rotate, they form the swastika symbol, which is why that symbol was so uh, prevalent in the ancient world. Thus, they represent the entire sky with God's throne at the center. Quote, Ezekiel has made immediate sense of his vision. He is looking into the night sky and interprets the constellations in line with Babylonian understanding. For this reason, Ezekiel is called an astral prophet. He learns God's will from the stars in the sky. The fact that the rim of the wheels, verse 18, see verses 15 through 21, on which the living creatures moved are, quote, full of eyes, confirms this. The ancients called stars eyes and thought them to be living entities. Constellated stars called full of eyes were perceived as animate beings like persons or animals. Since Ezekiel sees all four constellations moving at once, his vantage point was high above the entire cosmos. According to ancient star lore, the constellations support the firmament, that solid bowl-like object that covers the earth. That is precisely what Ezekiel saw. <clears throat> that the creatures are constellations is supported by the observation that above them is the solid crystalline firmament, Rakia, and above the firmament is the throne of God. Ezekiel's vision is of stars, the sky dome, and the throne in heaven. Job 38, 4-7, Where were you when I, Jehovah, laid the foundation of the earth? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. <clears throat> the first thing to observe here is that the, quote, sons of God, i.e. the members of the divine council, seem to be identified with the morning stars. 
The two lines in verse 7 are parallel, and the subjects of each line would appear to be the same, or at the very least, linked. We may also note that the stars slash sons of God were not involved in creating. Jehovah did that, but they were around when God made the earth, and they responded to God's creative activity with joy. Job 4.18 and 15.15. In Job 4.18 and 15.15 seem to contain the same idea and need to be interpreted in the light of each other. Quote, Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. 4.18. Quote, Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. 15.15. By, quote, heavens, the poet most likely has the heavenly bodies in mind. <clears throat> this would also make the stars as equivalent to, quote, his servants, his angels, and his holy ones. The point of fifteen fourteen through 16 is that God is so pure that even his heavenly servants seem impure by comparison. If even the stars slash heavenly beings cannot be pure in his sight, how much less can human beings? All right, guys, I think I'm going to stop there for the night. I'll continue this uh, in a part two. So uh, thanks for listening. All right, bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.